Do traditional teaching methods still have a place in the modern international school? Are things like textbooks, call and response or direct instruction even still valuable? If your school's grappling with these questions, this episode's for you. Hi everyone, I'm Shane Leaning and this is a podcast about education across countries and cultures. I work in teaching and leadership development and in this show, I get to know the teachers, leaders and innovators making a difference around the world. Before we get into today's episode, regular listeners may have noticed that I tweaked the show name. What once was Travel Ed is now Global Ed Leaders. This changes actually after feedback from you, the listeners. I did a few polls online and spoke to a few people, and it seems we agreed that this change would help more people like you find the show. And don't worry, the content stays the same. I'm still talking to inspiring educators around the world and reflecting on the latest international education practices in the hopes that this empowers you to be more informed and a better leader in your school. If you like this show, I'd love to hear from you. I'm an avid Twitter user, so you can find me there with my Twitter handle, at LeaningShane, and I do respond to all messages. I'm also on LinkedIn and Instagram, and you can find those using the link in the show notes. In today's episode, I spoke with Dan Gerard, a music teacher in Penang. Dan is a big voice in the online music teaching scene with his popular blog, Traditional Primary Music. And that's what we're speaking about today. Is there a place for traditionalism in creative subjects like music? And what does that look like? And how does this work in international schools? I started by asking Dan how his interest in traditional teaching methods came about. Let's jump in. When I started my teaching career and um, I was doing my PGCE, they said that we should go and talk to students and we talk to parents just about music in general. And I've kind of been doing that for about 21, 22 years now. What I found is that teachers, school leavers, parents, when I talk about their, um, their experience of, of learning music at school, they all are basically saying the same thing. Up to about the age of about 55, anyone over 55 has probably had a different experience. But um, everybody else seems to have had the same experience in, in music education. So I asked them, I said, tell me about your music education. What, you know, what did you learn? And they say, it wasn't very good, Dan. We messed around on keyboards and mucked around in groups. And almost everybody says that. I, I just had a big think about that, you know, because... There's been a huge amount of changes in music education, but everyone says the same thing. And um, that is a particular type of education. That's not really a traditional education at all, which made me think um, perhaps, you know, that what we are teaching them is, is not traditional at all. And that made me look into the past and different ways of doing things. I really recognise that, that style of education. And I think so many of my friends think that's what music class was. Sit in front of a keyboard and, and play and usually use the sound effects. So use the sound effects, yeah, the DJ <laughs> button. Everyone knows that. Blast the DJ button. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for you, this idea of going back to a traditional type of education, you're meaning certain things, right? And I know something that you talk a little bit about, well, a lot about in your blog, and you also talk about in your social media channel is direct instruction. So how does that feature in the work that you do? Well, it's something that we've done all the time in music for hundreds possibly even thousands of years, the idea of, you know, I sing, you sing, I play, you play, that whole um, conversation in music. I play the drum, you play the drum, I copy, you copy. You know, this, this is something that's not recent. This has been going on for a millennium, 
you know, it's for a very, very long time. Yeah, so that's kind of where I see direct instruction. A lot of people find direct instruction is with two things. There's the Engelman direct instruction. Those are the sort of the scripted lessons for learning like English. I've got the book, actually. It's like um, 100 lessons to teach your child to read. And then some of it is in red. And that's what you say. And then some of it is what the child says. And it's all scripted. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not the direct instruction that, um, that I, I talk about in my blog. I'm talking about that interaction with children, with the teachers in, in basically the teachers in charge and the children are responding. Teachers in charge being the main thrust, right? Being the main thrust, especially for the younger children, yeah. When you get to older children, if I'm, I'm, I'm mainly primary. I've done some secondary teaching, but I, I would say that for definitely for primary, the majority of what we do is um, direct instruction from the front. Got it. And is that what you define? Because in your blog, you talk about this return to basics or back to basics teaching. Is that what you're alluding to there? Again, it goes all back to that whole idea of messing around in groups. I try to not mess around in groups. If, if I have children who have said their music education with me was messing around in groups, I would be distraught. That's not the whole point. It's good to do group work, you know. If you think about like um, the keyboards and the messing around in groups, that's kind of what I do. I'm a keyboardist in a band, <laughs> but outside of school, that's what I do. But I don't think that should be the experience that we give to all children. And I talk to these people and they say their experience of music education is basically that. They haven't actually learned much at all. Why do you think that doesn't work then? And what is it about what you advocate for that works better? Well, in my lessons, we don't have any keyboards for a start, so I don't have to worry about that. As far as group work goes, I've just got one room. I haven't got like breakout rooms. If I do anything with groups, I've got like a little garden area. They can go out into the garden. But um, most of the stuff I'm doing is the teacher at the front teaching and the children responding. So things like um, I do a lot of recorders and uh, recorders is always something that's been part of British music education. We do the recorded karate. This is very different to what we normally think of progressive education, very different to like group education. They all start at um, white belt and there's yellow belt, orange belt, all the way going up to gold belt. And they go mad about these. And there is a gimmick within it, which is these little hair bands. And they just love these little hair ties. They've got all these different colored hair ties and they collect them and they put them around their recorder. So I, I do quite a lot of, of recorders in my lessons. I love that. I love the, the recorder karate and getting different belts along the way. That's brilliant. I was going to say, it's quite, it's quite competitive as well. A lot of people think competition is a kind of a traditional thing and also ranking. So I do show the children where they've got to. The children all know who's on white belt, who's on yellow belt, who's on gold belt. And that's a little bit controversial for some people. You know, the whole idea is that the children know where they are. They kind of know where they're ranking. And what I will do is that children who are struggling a little bit I will put them when I'll say to like somebody who's on gold belt, I'll say, go and go and take so-and-so out outside in the garden and don't come back until they can play orange belt and then come back in. Some people who are listening might be cringing at this. And I've spoken to some teachers who say, oh, traditional teaching methods, they'll, they'll just stifle creativity and limit critical thinking skills. So how would you respond to that? Well, it's, it's the complete opposite. I listened to a really good debate between... Um, Guy Claxton and Daisy Christodelugu, and they were talking about creativity. And Daisy, she was taking the, the traditionalist side. She said, well, if you think about the person who's probably the greatest creator, Shakespeare, we know quite a lot about his education. We know it's incredibly traditional. And she also talks about, um, about Winston Churchill. And, you know, he was put in a remedial group for English. He was really struggling at school. 
And he says that a lot of his um, success being one of the best public speakers who's been around for a very, very long time, was down to his traditional teacher telling him how to make a really, really good sentence, understandable and clear. So I would say a lot of the time, the traditional part can be really useful in that sense. So you're saying that you don't need to struggle between a balance between, you know, providing that knowledge and skills, creativity and thinking skills. Well, I I don't think it's like that because I hear lots of people talk about creativity and they don't. A lot of them aren't, don't actually do anything very creative in the first place. I always find creativity is about patterns a lot of the time for music, definitely music, when you're composing music. It's about creating patterns which you know are going to work. Yeah. How do you know they're going to work? Because of your knowledge of how they've worked before. And normally, when you've got something that's a little bit more different, a little bit more inspirational, that's when you've got an inkling in your head, I think this could work. And again, that's based on your experience before and when you put those two things together then you can actually get really good creativity i always think it sounds a bit like if you're if you're if you're you're cooking i'm not a very good cook (laughs) i'm not very good i'm terrible cook um if you were going to teach people cooking you wouldn't just say here's a whole load of ingredients and see what you can make that's not how you'd become a good cook you need to know your ingredients you need to know how they all work and then what might happen is you might say well you know the recipe we did if you like just do a little tweak here or there, I've got a feeling that might work. And I don't think it's any different for music. It's about patterns. Unless you teach the children the sort of basic knowledge and the basic patterns in the first place, then they're going to struggle to create. Before you can be creative, you need those building blocks in place. And that's where direct instruction comes in. I think so. And um, John Hattie was challenged about the effect size of inquiry learning. because It was really low down compared to, to um, direct instruction. And he says that um, the problem with a lot of inquiry-based learning is that they do it too soon. You can't inquire about things unless you already know something to inquire on. He says nothing wrong with inquiry-based learning, but the reason is it's so low is because teachers try to do it too soon in a child's education. I work in primary. I would expect a lot more inquiry-based learning to be going on in secondary or later secondary. In primary, I would expect it to be the opposite, be a lot more teacher driven that's so interesting dan because actually i think if you were to go into most schools the opposite would be happening there's more inquiry happening in primary and less in secondary yes exactly yeah but it doesn't make any sense to me no and we both work in international schools i think do you think this is a particular challenge there and the reason i say this dan is you know online we're both on twitter right and i see a lot of conversation with uk educators there seems to be uh, a little bit of movement towards more direct instruction and 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 this being endorsed more. But out in international schools around the world, I rarely hear that kind of conversation. In fact, I, I think international schools have a much higher saturation of inquiry-led learning than elsewhere. Do you find the same? Yes, I think it's because it's a reaction from um, the people in the host country. We've often talked about different types of international education. When a lot of international education started, it was quite church-based with missionaries coming across the different countries. But nowadays, you've got a lot of people in the host country. They've all had pretty traditional educations and they want something different. And I think schools, international schools, they're trying to provide for that. They want something different. What they don't realise is that the parents often get quite frustrated about this. They want, they want a kind of less strict 
more inquiry-based learning, but they still want the really, really high standards. And sometimes that, I think, is where some of these questions come into play. A lot of parents are actually rejecting their host national education system by sending their child to an international style school. And sometimes that can lead schools to think, hey, okay, they they don't want anything to do with the traditional approach that maybe the host nation has. But this is but this is where it gets a little bit even more interesting, because I actually think that the, the parents change. Parents change when they first send their children to like a primary school. That's exactly what they want. Then they start to get a little bit worried. They start worrying about standards. They compare their child to people in the in different educational systems. And they're thinking, oh, my goodness, my child isn't doing as well. They need more homework. And then international schools have this constant um, battle between what's going on there. I actually think it's because the parents change. Why? Because they're worried about standards. I know that you um, you work a lot in, in, in China. And they've got the Gaokao, haven't they? Which is the, they have two days. And those two days of examinations kind of govern most of their life for a lot of people. It's, it's a big part of, of, of their life. That's kind of what they're used to. So they have to learn a completely different system. And um, I think that might be, must be quite confusing for parents as well. So they want something different, but at the same time, they want high standards. And they equate high standards with examinations, I guess. That's that's my theory. I might be I might be wrong. <laughs> I think this is really interesting. I hadn't thought about it in that way actually. But I've seen what you're saying. I've seen these parents who who join our schools wanting something different, but then, you know, not reverting to type. I think that's simplifying it too much, but they then kind of have their own ideas of what education should be and maybe sometimes they go, "Oh, hang on a second. You know, I'm not really feeling this." And also, maybe that's a good thing because international schools for example me and you both work with international education they don't have to be the antithesis of the local education system they're just meant to be taking on more international approaches which is not just inquiry learning as a pure form right it's it's other things it's like personalized learning maybe things like that well i've seen quite a few of these sort of more traditional things going on to um international schools so where i am now they have the the times table rock stars that sounds progressive, but actually it's incredibly traditional. <laughs> what, what's, what's that? That's, that's mathematics. But again, that's, um, that's, that's just for times tables. But it's, um, it's basically rote learning of times tables a lot of the time. It's rote learning times tables in a competition. <laughs> in a competition. It's a competition. It's not just a competition between the school, but between schools as well. I'm not an expert on this. I don't know a huge amount about it, but I know that's something that's been coming in also workbooks for example i um I, i've seen they're coming into 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 schools whole class feedback as well rather than the sort of no more marking i've seen that coming in as well so these these approaches which are coming from more traditional people this always seems to be five years later everything everyone thinks that edu- international education kind of moves five years later than everybody else <laughs> that's that's interesting because that's certainly not what's marketed by many of those schools right <laughs> Uh, some of these ideas, Dan, and I've seen you talk a little bit about this, have come from um, from work done actually at a British school called the the Michaela School. Yeah. Um, in London, uh, they follow a lot of the things you're talking about, like workbooks, direct instruction, this kind of thing. But they've got a lot of attention online and also in the media recently. I think there was a documentary called "The Britain's Strictest." head teacher um, and they've kind of had attention for those strict discipline policies and traditional methods so that means there's a lot of people who disagree with this approach or are they doing something a bit different there 
I think they they are they are responding to the demographics of where they are. So they're over in Wembley, and they have a particular building which requires strict discipline because they have to go up and down these stairs very very regimentedly otherwise there'll be accidents all the time um they've got it's a lottery based selection so it's not selected by whether you're good or bad or a subject or anything like that it's, it's based on a lottery and they do have um, a very rough area very rough area where, where, where these children are most international schools aren't like that, but that doesn't mean that um, we can't learn from some of the other things that they're doing. I think I, I actually think that they, they 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 go to a little bit to town on the discipline side, but I'm actually quite interested in, in a lot of those other things, like the workbooks, for example. A French teacher that I work with, he he talks about he calls it ping pong that when they say like you say one thing, the teacher says another, and those sort of ideas. So he's he was, he's over in Shanghai actually. Yeah, so that's another idea which has come across. I think it's um, it's Barry Smith, isn't it? The way he teaches French um, when he was at the Michaela School. As, as far as the discipline systems go, you need good discipline in any school. Of course you do. But um, I don't think we should be comparing international schools to Wembley. Yeah, it's potentially this kind of black or white mentality that many people have got at the minute that, you know, they, they look at one thing and think that must be what these people are advocating for when we're going to introduce a workbook or we're going to, introduce that kind of i say you say teaching yeah the, yeah my, my, my friend called it ping pong but <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's the proper name for it but um as far as the workbooks go one of the reasons for me being interested in the workbooks is because of international education and uh, when i was working with you working with english as additional language i remember we was talking about our south korean students who are coming in and a workbook is actually incredibly useful for them to be able to go away and just look back over the work that they've been doing. And um, so they know where you've been and where it's going to. And also because um, there's a lot of transience in international education. So workbooks are very useful. So children know what they have been doing and what they're going to be going on to. It seems like a no brainer to me. If it's a no-brainer, why do you think some teachers recoil at the idea? Because I think sometimes some of the barriers are, are teachers, right, who don't want to go down this approach. Oh, yeah. There's, there's, there's been a whole thing, especially in British education, about the, just the whole idea of a textbook. In one international school I went to, they had a table full of textbooks. And I went up to the Key Stage 2 coordinator. I said, what are all these textbooks doing on this table? And he said, oh, we're throwing them all out. And I said, why are you throwing out all the textbooks? And he said, um, oh, no good teacher uses textbooks. Wow. And this was at a top international school. And um, in this international school, just the individual teachers, they, they had textbooks and they would lock them away so that their managers wouldn't see. And then people would ask, oh, by the way, have you got that textbook? Can I have a little look inside? <laughs> it was like a, a forbidden idea, the whole idea of a textbook. And nowadays, there is a textbook. There is a textbook. It's called Twinkle for <laughs> primary. And basically, that's they've just recreated the textbook like that. As far as the workbook goes, that's different because that can be taken away. That can be taken away by the student, by the parents. I think that's different to what's going on at the moment. Yeah. This burn the textbook thing is is not new, right? It's been happening for years and years. This idea of textbooks are terrible, and of course, of course, you know when I work with teachers, I tell them why why are textbooks terrible? They're just a 
they're just a resource. I guess I think there's been a, a bit of a lethal mutation in how this has been communicated. I guess a textbook would be bad if a teacher was just blindly picking up a textbook, not really thinking about what they wanted to deliver, what learning they wanted to happen, and just followed from A to B. Yes, absolutely. And that's actually one of the big problems we've got in music education. There has been a textbook. It's been the Music Express books. And there's nothing terribly wrong with them. But you have had teachers who follow the year one book, the year two book, the year three book, the year four book, the year five book, the year six book, just going through the whole whole thing. And that's not teaching either, is it? Yeah. Just going through a textbook without thinking about it. But some students, that is the experience they've had of music as well. I've got nothing against textbooks. In fact, I really like the idea of textbooks, as long as you're thinking about them. Exactly. And I think... I can really speak to this, in, and this is evidenced in where I live, Dan. In Shanghai, they follow a textbook in the, in, the, in the public and private schools for maths, for example. They follow a textbook. They use a textbook all the way through the school lives, and, and Shanghai ranks right at the top of most league tables yes. in maths. They do very well in maths. The students actually learn there. But what's interesting is that when, from the outside, you might think textbooks are just being blindly followed, but actually... These teachers are going to weekly professional development sessions. They're constantly collaborating with each other. They have the time to really think about the how of what they teach. Um, so they're they not just blindly following. They're using these textbooks as a departure point and as a way to standardize some quality and to save the time so that they can focus on the delivery of the learning. But I think in subjects like yours, creative subjects, some people would be more reluctant. Well, I just think in the end, you get most students get something like an hour of music a week. So that's 36 weeks in a normal school term, 10 years. So you've got 360 hours to do music. And so my question is, what have they learned in 360 hours of music tuition? And like I said, right at the beginning of this podcast, right, they spend most of the time keyboards and messing around in groups for 360 hours, it seems to be. Perhaps I'm being a bit unfair there, but um, that seems to be what they, they've, they, they feel they've got out of it. So we've talked um, a little bit over this, uh, the last half hour about why this traditional approach would work better and a little bit about why it's maybe being rejected in some schools. For any schools that were maybe thinking, do you know what, this traditional approach is something that we'd like to foster and investigate and incorporate into our teaching practice and our curriculum. Do you have any advice that you might give to schools considering this, or are there any considerations they should keep in mind? Yeah, well, if you're going to try to get everybody to buy into something like this, you've got to do something which people will struggle to reject. And um, I, I would say that something that's been promoted around lots of schools is the rose and shine idea of instruction. There's, I think it's different types, like 11 ways of instructing or there's a 17-point scale or something like that. I don't think it really matters. The whole idea is what effective instruction is. And um, it's, people say, oh, it's just common sense. And it is kind of common sense about how to instruct children. But it doesn't actually happen as much as you think it is. But that will be a way to get the whole staff body, the, the parents, the children, if you're going to just try something that was a little bit more traditional. Um, instruction, direct instruction is pretty traditional. Also, if you've got a student, if you've got some, if you've got some staff where, because I've got a friend who's going into leadership 
and he's concerned about trying to get all the staff on the same page. This might be a good way of doing it, actually. Something that you can't really completely disagree with. I don't know anyone who has disagreed with Rosenshine's principles of instruction. So some people might quibble a little bit and say, oh, it's not all about that. But most people would say it's just common sense teaching. So for anyone who's interested in Rosenstein's principle of instruction, there are some good resources online. I think even Tom Sherrington has done some good YouTube videos on this that people can access as well. So it's quite accessible stuff. But then there's, um, there's actually um, Barack Rosenstein has written um, some articles, which you could just, they're just like on two, about two, two pages of A4 that you could give out to any, any teachers who are interested. And if you could leave listeners with one, one message or is one idea that you'd want people to, to take away? Well, if there's any music educators out there, I would like to say, how would you feel if your students say, all I learned in music was how to mess around on keyboards and muck around in groups? I wouldn't be happy with that. There might be some teachers who think that's okay. But um, I would say, let's make music education more than that. That's what many of them are coming out saying. I know it's not a very, um, it's not completely research-based. It's just me talking to people. But I've been teaching in many, many schools with hundreds of people. I talk to them all the time. This is what they're all saying. What I loved about today's conversation with Dan was the challenge it gives us as leaders to not be so black and white with our thinking. In the pursuit of the latest and best practices, we can often throw out old, more traditional approaches like they're not of worth anymore. Yet the real power comes when we embrace tried and tested teaching methods and integrate them with our new practices. It seems to me it's all about looking at the evidence and applying balance to our thinking. Global Ed Leaders is hosted and produced by me, Shane Leaning. Original music by Guillermo Silva. If you like the show, please like, subscribe and help spread the word by giving a rating wherever you listen to your podcast. You can also follow along and join the conversation on social media using the links in the show notes. See you next week.